Uh, if you'd please turn with me to our scripture reading for this morning. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. First Peter chapter 5, and I'll begin at verse 1. It says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You have just witnessed the installation of Kevin Kreider as an elder and Justin Long as a deacon. We are extremely thankful for these men and for their willingness to serve. The elders and deacons of the church carry a tremendous weighty responsibility. They do much behind the scenes, which others are totally unaware of. The kind of time commitment that is involved uh, is quite staggering. Their role is a difficult one for, again, so much of it is private. So much of it is Yes, a joy and other times an anguish as you lament with people for the trials and difficulties that they face, seeking to alleviate some of the symptoms of their tragedies and to encourage them in their faith and instill with them an ever-increasing love for God. Their roles necessitate that they are men of wisdom, and beyond that, to be a person who is spiritually mature and of high moral character. That need is perhaps best seen in the way in which they are to exercise their leadership in the church according to the scriptures. Peter gives a charge to the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I invite you to turn with me there again. 1 Peter chapter 5. First two verses read, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that, God is, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. However, what Peter writes here is not limited to the elders. It is true for all church leaders. And beyond that, it is true of everyone for the leaders are to be examples to others and to how they are to conduct themselves and they are to be emulated. Uh, they are to be followed. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 reads, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace 
to the humble. So this spirit of humility, which characterizes all of that I'm about to say, is to be evidenced among all of God's people. So as I read this passage, don't just focus alone on eldership. And I will be repeatedly referring to church leaders, but again, don't just focus the application on leaders, but think of all of us in the way in which we interact and the way in which we are involved in each other's lives. The theme this morning is a consideration of the manner in which church leaders should exercise that leadership among God's people. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this morning, I want to talk about the manner or characteristics of that which a leadership, a leader is to conduct his leadership. First, leaders should not exercise leadership because they are forced to, but because they want to. Not because they are forced to, but because they want to. Notice verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, exercising oversight. And now these words, not under compulsion. Not under compulsion. According to the text, a person should not feel a compulsion to serve. That is a pressure of any kind. It is not to be done out of a result of being forced in order to take on this responsibility. There can be pressures that people bring to bear upon others to serve. All such attempts need to be resisted. All too often, people will lay a guilt trip on someone else in order to try to get them to perform a certain duty or task or take on a, a responsibility. Pressure can come from family or friends who mean well, but wrongly encourage others to take on responsibilities that they perhaps are not ready for or view themselves as not able to fulfill. As a church, we have a nominating committee. And so that nominating committee meets and puts forward names of individuals that we think would make good elders and deacons. Then those individuals so selected by the nominating committee are approached to see if they are indeed willing to serve. It's important that as a nominating committee that we do not bring untoward pressure upon individuals to serve, not to give the impression that we are desperately in need and there's too much work for the few to do and so it's really essential that you serve. A person is not to serve because they're coerced. They're to serve because they are willing. Not because they have to, but because they want to. For notice the text says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Willingly. Rather, the elder and deacon are to serve freely. Willingly has a true sense of volunteerism as opposed to being drafted 
We all know the difference between a volunteer and a draftee. That is, when asked to serve, the person has complete freedom to say no. And I would say to you that that extends to every role and responsibility in the life of the church. Everyone ought to be serving because we want to. And we all need to understand that a person has the right to say no. And we should not pressure those that, for whatever reason, believe that it is not the right time or they're not the right person to fulfill the role of responsibility. And we are to be thankful and commend those that willingly say yes and do so out of a desire to really be helpful and to serve with the right spirit and the right motive. It's also necessary, not only when a person initially takes on the responsibility, but as they continue to serve, as they continue to minister. We've had elders and deacons that have served many, 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 many years. And as we serve, it must be always with that spirit of willingness. Not a sense of drudgery, not a sense of obligation and duty alone, but also the sense of an appreciation and gratefulness for the privilege and the opportunities that God grants. It's commendable when a person serves freely. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. But the reward comes in doing it of one's own will. Secondly, leaders should not exercise leadership because of what they can get out of it, but because of what they can contribute by being a leader. Being a leader provides a wonderful opportunity to have a position of influence over individuals' lives and the church as a whole. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, at the end of the verse, it says, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain. Shameful gain is revenue that is acquired as a result of greed and perhaps dishonest, exploitative means. Often, leaders in the secular world are corrupt and misuse funds and influences in order to further their own purse or their own agenda. They are in it for themselves and what they are able to get out of it. False teachers are repeatedly referred to in the scriptures as being motivated by greed, and they exploit and take advantage of others. For example, in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it reads, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, just as our passage refers to, what they ought not to teach. Unfortunately, that is the example of too many. Church leaders must not misuse, mishandle monies or their place of influence. It is certainly not wrong for a person to be paid or rewarded for their service of the Lord. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians makes a strong defense 
for giving financial support to those who labor in the Lord's work. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's a lengthy portion, but listen as I read. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sakes? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed at the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now these men are, are not going to be paid for their service to the Lord, so that motivation certainly isn't going to be present. But there are other ways that service can render advantage, and they're to be very careful against that. Exploitation in any sense is wrong. The gain doesn't always have to be financial. Unfortunately, there are others that sometimes serve as a way of furthering their own business, of gaining a reputation in the community. Someone who wants to run for a church office, made, uh, excuse me, for political office, may hold a position in the church in order to gain a reputation, uh, to get a standing, uh, to gain approval. There are others that, for whatever reason, might have some kind of vested interest, some benefit, even as much as being an officer in the youth group to have something else to put on your college application that shows leadership and community service. There are many wrong motivations, all of which are to be avoided. Personal benefit should not be the motivation. Rather, we are to be serving eagerly, if you look at verse 2. Not for shameful gain, and here's the converse, but eagerly. To serve eagerly is to serve magnanimously. That is, with a very generous and gracious spirit. It's the absolute opposite of personal greed. It's with a sense of overflowing desire to give, to give, to give. Willing to give of one's time and resources in a very generous way. It's truly sacrificial. There is a personal cost that's associated with that kind of leadership. They are giving of their times. They are giving of their energies. They are taking away from personal time, family time. There is a cost. There is an emotional cost that's association with being a leader. Having to take on the criticism. Having to take difficult positions that are never pleasant. The confrontations that sometimes have to occur that no one wants to be a part of, but yet finds to be necessary. There is great personal cost 
that's associated with being a leader, and it's for that very reason that so often people shy away from it. It is truly an investment. And I use that word wisely. It's an investment in people's lives and the prosperity of the church. And then thirdly, leaders should not exercise leadership forcefully, but inspirationally. Notice verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In each one of these, there is first the negative and then there's the positive. The negative is found in the words not domineering over those in your charge. People who are exercising authority in the church should never have power issues. Power issues. That is, people who are obsessed with gaining power and exercising power over other people. They should not be seeking to lord it over others, to have control over people's lives, making other people beholding to them in some way. In order to avoid that, they need to be people who, first of all, are willing to share power with others rather than to hold on to it. That they are willing to relinquish responsibilities and duties and be willing to share them with other people. As the church grows, there's an interesting phenomenon that takes place. That is, the leadership actually loses authority and power as opposed to gain authority and power. When I first came, the church was much, much smaller. And there were only 15 people that actually had any decision-making role in the life of the church. 15 people. The last I sat down and looked at it, which was quite some time ago, it was 80. I wouldn't be surprised if it's over 100 now. That means that dilutes the authority of the few that had it before. Now other people are making decisions. Now they're delegating. Now they're welcoming other people's opinions and insight and participation. That has to be the spirit of wanting to see other people prosper and grow and to be used of God. Not only to be willing to share the responsibilities, but not to be micromanagers. Not people who are demanding and require that everyone does it the way they did it, but when they relinquish a responsibility, they truly relinquish it. And let that person take it and fulfill it in the way in which they see best, without having to report back and be sure they dot every I and cross every T the way the person did it before them. But most importantly, there must be people who are not seeking to manipulate others, giving out responsibilities and duties in order, again, to control them in a very inappropriate way of making them somehow beholding to them, making them view them as having authority over them, especially in their personal lives and in other ways. Instead, they're to lead inspirationally. For we look at the word in verse 3, it says, be examples to the flock. Examples to the flock. 
Church leaders are to be role models for others. They are to lead in such a way that their work is admired and appreciated. They are to be people whose advice is sought out and whose counsel is welcomed. It's not that they are just laying down laws and dictating, but people want to hear from them. People appreciate their input and involvement in their lives. They welcome what they have to say because they're viewed as people of wisdom and people who really care, people who are concerned and want to help. As a result, there are to be people who are emulated, looked up to, admired. Others want to be like them. That's what it means to be an example. Even further, they are to lead in such a way that others want to walk in their footsteps, to take up the mantle of being an elder or a deacon themselves, looking at it as something that is favorable, it's desirable. For they have admired this individual and they say, I want to be like that, I want to do that, that's what I want my life to be. A good leader produces not only followers, but future leaders as well. Good leaders are people who prepare them to lead after them, to relinquish all the responsibility and have people that are qualified and prepared, equipped, and ready to serve. That's always the ultimate goal of the leader, to pass on the responsibilities and duties to others. Lastly, leaders should exercise leadership with an eye to the reward that's before them at the Lord's return. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, it states, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. As one thinks about entering the Lord's service and wonders what is the reward, what's the payback, if it isn't financial, if it isn't material, if it isn't exaltation through others, what is the benefit well, here it's receiving an unfading crown of glory. An unfading crown of glory. The reward or honor that the Lord gives is long-lasting. It's an unfading crown of glory. The rewards that are associated with service in this life are fading. They are fleeting. They are short-lived. The imagery of this unfading crown is actually the Olympic wreath. In the old days, uh, medals weren't given as they are given today in the modern Olympics, but a victor would be given a, a wreath that would be woven out of vines and formed into the vestige of a crown and placed upon a person's head. Well, over time, that wreath would wither. It would dry up. It would come to naught. So it is with human honor and reputation. It fades over time. It withers. There are momentary recognitions. A life of service might be rewarded by an appreciation dinner 
or a plaque, a testimonial, a tribute, or an honor that is presented. And when that dinner is over, when that honor has been put on the wall, when that tribute has ended, it's over. It's over, and so many people have real difficulty with facing life after the reward is over, after life begins to fade, after the respect begins to dwindle. However, we're told of an unfading crown of glory. Service to the Lord is a work that counts for eternity. Let me say that again. Service for the Lord is a work that counts for eternity. It is everlasting. And that is a tremendous source of encouragement. What most people give their lives to is momentary and fleeting. It's transitory. It's not long-lasting. It will mean nothing in the years that come ahead. However, those who have been serving the Lord with their lives have eternal significance. I imagine those of you who are here this morning who have attained any age, maybe young children haven't heard it, but I'm sure if you are of any age at all, you have heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. Have you not? You can't take it with you. Meaning all of the effort, all of the work that has been accomplished in this life, when you die, what does it mean? You can't take it with you. You can't take your money. You can't take your wealth. You can't take that which tangibly has been accumulated with you when you die. It ceases. It is over. Most people's work, indeed, they can't take with them. But listen to the words of the scripture, Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds do follow them. That they rest for their labors and their deeds do follow them. That's talking about when we were in the presence of God. We take the deeds, we take the accomplishments, we take the sacrifices that are associated with the service of the Lord into the future. It doesn't end when we die. In fact, that's the primary time of reward. And as we think of that reward, as we think of that crown of glory that is unfading, of what does it consist? Well, ultimately, it's the praise of God. It's a public display. It's a, it's a crown that's given. And in that public display, there is recognition of what one's life means for others. It's important that we remember that when we are serving, we are ultimately not serving an institution. We're serving people. And even as we think of the church, we can never lose sight of the fact that the church is far more than an organization or an institution. 
The church is God's people. And in all of our programming and all of our activities, we must always remember that ultimately they are for the benefit of people. It's about people. It's about helping them. And so Paul writes to the, to the people of Thessalonica. He says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? He asked that question of them. What is our hope? What is our joy or crown of boasting at the Lord's coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You are our glory and joy. That which we take delight in is the people that we've had the opportunity to help, encourage, influence, bless. And that's our glory. The appreciation that's shown the kindnesses that are expressed, the gratitude that is conveyed. In the sovereignty of God, in preparation of this message two weeks ago, I got two different phone calls, both from people expressing gratitude. One from a person that I had in the youth group 45 years ago. now in the Lord's ministry and work, was conducting a seminar. Mentioned my name and said, I just had to call and say thank you and appreciate your involvement in my life. That's the glory. That's the joy. Taking joy in the difference that you make in people's lives the help and benefit you provide, the way that you ease their suffering and pain, introduce them to the Lord Jesus as their Savior, help them on their spiritual journey. This is the role of an elder. This is the role of a deacon. This is the role of a Sunday school teacher. This is the role of everyone who involves themselves in the life of the church, being a blessing to others. In closing, I just want to say I am thankful for Kevin and for Justin, who I believe have presented themselves with the utmost sense of willingness to serve. Both of these men are servants of the Lord. I don't question their motivations whatsoever. I'm appreciative for the sacrifices that they are willing to make and will have to make. I'm incredibly grateful for our elders and deacons. You don't know how much effort that they put forth the kindnesses that they show, or sometimes the grief that they take. But uh, pray for them. Pray for them. All of our elders, all of our deacons, all of our church leaders, thank you to each one of you for your participation in the life of the church. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for this day, and we thank you for your people. Bless us. Continue to bring honor and glory to yourself. Advance your kingdom, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.